right now as we open up your word, as we do on Wednesday nights. Uh, we come in and perhaps some of us haven't had dinner. We've been in a rush and uh, it's been busy. And uh, right now I'm just glad that we can just be settled into our chairs, that we can right now focus on what you want to say to us through your word. And uh, so, Lord, just teach us. And it's more than just a history lesson as we look at the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, but there is application to be made. So help us to make that application. And Lord, bless this time and help us be attentive and have our spiritual ears open and our hearts that are ready to receive the word of God. Lord, I thank you for these Wednesday nights. And um, it's something that isn't done a lot um, in churches today, a midweek service. Uh, at a time where churches are really dropping midweek services, um, thinking that people don't come, and especially as we're going through the Old Testament. But Lord, how blessed we have been over the weeks and, and this whole year as we've gathered on Wednesday nights just to open up the Word of God and to read it and go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. How it's strengthened us and, and blessed us, and we've grown in the knowledge of, of you, Lord. And I pray that it would continue tonight and then again in January when we come back and pick it up where we left off tonight and just continue that next year, that we would never grow weary. That's my prayer, Lord, for us here at Calvary Chapel, that we would never, ever grow weary of studying the Word of God. But Lord, that we know that as we've seen, even in the book of Acts, that they continue steadfastly in the Word of God. And Lord, we must continue steadfastly as well, especially in the day in which we're living in. Because Lord, we know there's so much hurt and so much confusion and there's so much wondering out there. And it's those who, are, who know the word of God who are able to take it and to apply it to what's going on around us, to be able to say, this is that which is spoken, just as Peter did as we saw in the book of Acts that those are the ones that are going to be able to effectively and very powerfully and very persuasively and very clearly be able to minister to others. In a world that's mixed up and messed up, where there's all kinds of philosophies and all kinds of, of wondering and um, ideas and opinions, we want truth. And we know that this is absolute truth given to us that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, for correction. So that's why we come here tonight, that we might receive that and be edified and built up. So we give you this time, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in 2 Kings chapter 13, we read, And in the 20th, 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Pinhadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. And so the northern kingdom continues with their run of idol-worshiping kings as they were delivered into the hands of Hazael, king of Syria. And recall that we are introduced to Hazael in 2 Kings chapter 8. It was Elijah that was summoned by the king of Syria. The king of Syria was sick, 
And he knew that Elijah uh, was very special, even though he was an unbeliever, he was a pagan king. He had seen the God working through Elijah very powerfully. So he calls for Elijah and he wants to know, will I recover from my sickness? And of course, Hazael at that time was uh, the king of Syria's uh, servant. So Hazael comes and he gets Elijah and he says, the king wants to know, is he going to recover from his sickness? And it was Elijah that said, yes, he's going to live, but he's going to die. And it wasn't double talk that Elijah was given to him. He was saying, yes, he's going to recover from his sickness, but he's going to eventually die. And of course, that's what happened as we continue reading in that chapter, chapter 8 of 2 Kings. It was the king of Syria that recovered from his sickness, but Hazael, in his um, rebellion against the king and his wickedness, he smothered the king, he killed him, and he became the king. But also you recall in that chapter that it was Elijah, when he gave that answer to Hazael, yes, he's going to live, but you're going to kill him. So he's going to die. And that took place. But also that he would kind of go into a, a stare, Elijah, and began to weep. And Hazael's like, what's going on? And he said, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go into Israel and you're going to do horrible, terrible things. And you remember the response of Hazael? The response was, what am I, a dog that I would do such things? Sometimes we look at, at the things that people do and we think, how can they do those things? But when there is evil and depravity in the heart of a man, that he will go to great lengths of doing very evil things. And, and that's why Jeremiah says that our hearts are desperately wicked. You know, it, it's man that says there's good in everyone. God says, no, no good in anyone. No one is righteous. No, not one. And in our flesh is no good thing. So here is Hazael. He was told that. And of course, he has now come to Israel and he has um, Israel in um, oppression and, and uh, has come in and is doing these terrible things. And of course, one of the things that we've seen very clearly as we've gone through First and Second Kings is that these nations, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, rebelling against the Lord, that it has brought oppression to them. And oppression is the result of transgression. You see, as they've transgressed against the Lord, the Lord said that this was going to happen. And their enemies have come in and have come in and, and held them captive and in bondage and oppressed them. And that's what we see is happening here. But we need to realize that it's true for our own lives. If we're in rebellion against the Lord and we are doing contrary to what the Lord would have us to do, that, that there's going to be oppression that will come to us. The world is just going to beat on you and, and oppress you and begin to defeat you. And that's what was happening to the nation here. And so what did J-O-O Ahaz do? Well, he pleaded, verse 4, with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. So in this oppression, he, the king of Israel, cries out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him. And this speaks of the mercy of God, doesn't it? Uh, the sinner that calls out to the Lord, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, and please know that. Here, as it says that he pleaded with the Lord, and implies that he was at the end of his rope. There was nowhere else for him to turn. And God will allow that to happen so that we will turn to him. And I think that some of us, if not many of us, that we have that testimony in our lives that, that we were at that place where we realized that the world brought nothing but you know, depression and defeat and oppression. And we realized that uh, the world was, there was no hope. Um, and 
the world left us empty, and, and that was the world. And we knew that there was more to life than what the world had to offer. And we would come to that place where we realized that we're spiritually bankrupt, and we would cry out to the Lord. And the Lord heard our cries in our weakness, didn't he? And then realizing that we need the Lord as we turn to him. And so that's a testimony that many of us have. And God is so merciful and gracious that he came to save sinners, that we can repent and turn to him. Repent as we saw that Peter there on the day of Pentecost, he stood up and he said, men of Israel, repent. In other words, turn towards Jesus, the one that I just told you who was delivered up and crucified and rose again, and he is Lord, and he's the one that brings salvation. So cry out to the Lord for salvation. Repent, that is change direction, and now turn to Jesus Christ. And again, as I mentioned on Sunday when we were talking about that in Acts chapter 2, that repent is not a word that we hear much in the church today, because there's all kinds of thoughts when we heard that, hear that word repent of, you know, restriction and limitations and hardness and, and this uh, kind of thinking. And really, it's a wonderful word, as I mentioned to you, that we are able to turn to the Lord because he is our salvation. He is our only hope. But I pray that we would always give that message to others that the Lord is there as you turn to him, to those who are lost, because this is the time of year that I think just about uh, all of us that we're going to be with people, whether it's with you know parties at work, if you haven't done that already, Christmas parties with family, with neighbors, uh, those during the holiday that we're with, that some of those people and our families and others, they don't know the Lord. And we're able to tell people that we have opportunity to share with and share truth with them and share the gospel with that you can turn to Jesus Christ. I, I see that, and we'll talk about it on Sunday, that the scripture never just leaves us in our sin, that there is hope. And that's why Jesus Christ came. Uh, on Sunday again, as we uh, finish up chapter 3, we're going to see that Peter is going to address those who gathered after that healing that we saw on Sunday as we opened up chapter 3. And he tells them that you guys did this, you rebelled against God, but Peter didn't leave them there. He didn't back them into a corner and say, you guys have been rebellious and, um, and have transgressed against God, and you know what, judgment's going to come and forget you. And sometimes as Christians, I hear that, that they'll back a, you into a corner, you know, the sinner, and say, you're a sinner, and you know, you're in rebellion against God, and judgment's going to come without giving any hope. That you can turn to Jesus, turn to him, repent. He desires for you to come to him and surrender to him. Recognize your need for the Savior of the world. You know, there's been a lot. I want to be able to, to help you be able to minister to those as we still are feeling the effects of what happened on Friday at the uh, Sandy, you know, Creek, um, at the elementary school in, in, in Newtown, Connecticut, and how awful that was. And, and really, we just... Wow, it shocked the nation, and I'm sure it shocked every single one of us. So in the discussion, and there's a lot of discussion about how did this happen, and how can we keep it from happening again, and they're bringing religious leaders and, and pastors and stuff, interviewing them, and how can God let this happen? And where was God? Did God see, and was God there, and... There's a array of all kinds of answers that I'm reading about that are being given. And the thing about it is, is I want us to be able to tell people that, you know what, God is there if you turn to him. 
that he loves you and sent his son to die for you. That we can give that message at this season and every season to those who, who need to hear the gospel, those who need to hear hope. It would be later on in the book of Jeremiah, and it's a verse that I'm sure that many of you are familiar with. When the house of Judah went into captivity and Jeremiah was ministering to the people, they were off in the captivity and they were wondering, what happened to us and, and does the Lord see us and where is the Lord? And, and Jeremiah was told that you write a letter and the Lord would say to them, that I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart and I will be found by you. You know one of the messages that we can give to those who are hurting, to those who are wondering, to those who are asking these questions, where is the Lord? that we can say he can be found by you if you seek him, if you call out to him and realize that his thoughts towards you are thoughts of peace and not of evil. In other words, he is your future and your hope. He's your only hope. He's your only future. He's your only salvation. And that's the message that we can give to people, pointing them to the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here was a king at the end of his rope, and he calls out to the Lord. And we're going to see that the Lord had compassion and was gracious to them, as we see here, because of his love to them. And yes, those who reject the Lord, there is going to be judgment. That is very clear. But we need to not just leave people in a corner with no way out. We need to tell them that the Lord is there to be found if you truly, sincerely, with your heart, cry out to him. He's there ready to hear you, and he sees you. And he desires to forgive and bring salvation to you. So here is the king calling out. Now the other side of the spectrum is this. I've seen people in situations like this that cry out to the Lord, but they're truly not wanting to repent. They're only, you know, ups, you know upset and they're feeling the pressures and, and the consequences um, and the repercussions of what they have done. Uh, I've had people, you know, in terrible, terrible, you know, situations and they truly don't want to repent. They're sorry that they got caught or experiencing the, the consequences of sin, but there's no real true turning to the Lord. And that's what we're going to see, that the house of Israel and this king did not truly turn back to the Lord. It reminds me of a verse that I've shared with you many times, the 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Listen, any time that you truly repent, that you will never, never, ever regret it. So godly sorrow, there is a godly sorrow that produces repentance, turning to the Lord, that leads to salvation. And not only is it talking about salvation, eternal life with Jesus Christ, but the full orb of God's blessing in your life as you turn to him and as you're walking in his ways and you will never regret it. But then Paul goes on to say that the worldly sorrow, the sorrow of the world produces death. There is a worldly sorrow where there's no true repentance to God. You're just sorry for the consequences that you're experiencing, and you continue on in that sin, and it will bring death. It will just bring death to your soul and to your life, your spiritual life. So we've talked about that verse quite a bit as we've gone through here, and here's a king. He cries out to the Lord, 
And we read in verse 5, the Lord gave Israel deliverer so they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin but walked in them and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. So in Samaria, what they had was this, um, this image, this wooden image there that was dedicated to a Canaanite goddess. Uh, Asherah was her name, and it remained there. They, they didn't get rid of their false worship, the golden calf that was worshiped in Bethel and in Dan. They re- continued in the sins of, um, of Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, in verse 8. Now the rest of the acts of Jer- Jehoahaz and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. So God sends them a deliverer, but they continue in their sin. And we think, why would they do that? Well, God sent us a deliverer, didn't he, 2,000 years ago? Born unto you in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus coming, and he is the Savior of the world. And he has delivered us from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. He's delivered us from the enemy and and he's delivered us from the world. And and yet so many people reject him because they want to continue in their sin. So here we see the end of Jehoahaz, his reign. He left the nation very, very weak. And Jehoash reigns in Israel as we talk about him in verses 10 through 13 in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoahaz. Ash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did in his might, with which he fought against uh, Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam II, sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So here, the a, a brief summary that we have here, the reign of Jehoash, and he's the grandson of Jehu. He, he did war, we know, uh, with Amaziah in Judah. And this story is also told of here um, of Jehoash, during the time of the death of Elijah that we read about in verse 14, because Elijah had become sick with the illness in which he would die. And then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. Elijah became sick and it would lead to his death. And it wasn't because he lacked faith, but God wanted to bring him home. And for all of us, unless we're raptured, and I pray that we all get raptured very soon, but if the Lord tarries, that our days will come to an end eventually, that it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. As Moses would write in Psalm 90, the Lord teaches to number our days. So there's a number of days that we have, but there's an appointment with death that we have, and there's going to be a time when the Lord is going to bring us home. And so this is that time for Elijah, and, and he is going to go home to be with the Lord. And Elijah, of course, as we have read about his prophetic ministry, had great influence over Israel, that, that even the pagan kings of Israel and even the pagan kings of Syria recognized him as a man of God. Do the people, even though they aren't believers, will they say, 
that there's a man of God, a man, of, uh, a woman of God. There's somebody that loves the Lord. They, they might call you a Jesus freak or something like that, but they realize that you have a love for the Lord and that you're walking with the Lord. And certainly they did with Elijah. And even here, Joash, the king of Israel, this idol worshiper recognizes that he was the strength of the nation. That as he cries out here in, O Israel, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Oh, he was the strength of the nation. He was a blessing to the nation in so many ways as we saw in these chapters that we read about Elijah. We read as Elijah in verse 15 said to the king, um, Joash, that take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elijah put his hand on the king's hand. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elijah said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Apec, for you have for till you have destroyed them. In verse 18, and then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. And then Elijah died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elijah. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. Interesting story, isn't it? That he tells the king of, of, of Israel, you know, open the window and shoot the arrows out and you're going to defeat Syria. And then he tells him, he takes, takes the arrows and strike the ground and and what the king of Israel does, and I just kind of reading in between the lines, I think he said, okay, one, two, three, and he stopped. And Elijah said, no, you should have done it with fervency. You should have struck the ground. You should have said five, six times strike the ground. And I think that this little vignette teaches us about the danger of apathy, which we can fall into so easily. Spiritual laziness being lethargic spiritually, being apathetic in our walk with the Lord. And it can happen. And the Lord doesn't want us to be apathetic. He wants us to be fervent, to be sober, to be vigilant. We're told in the New Testament, fervent in spirit, Acts chapter 18, verse 25. Be fervent in prayer, James chapter 5, verse 16. And fervent in love, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. You should have taken those arrows and you should have struck the ground and, and done it with urgency and with fervency and just five, six times, but now you only did it three times, so you're only going to defeat the Syrians three times, as we will see here in just a few verses. But what my prayer and hope for us here at Calvary Chapel, as we close the year and as we enter into a new year, that if there seems to be a little bit of apathy or, or you know, um, you know, being lethargic in your spiritual walk with the Lord, that you would say, Lord, help me. I want to be fervent in spirit, in prayer, in love for you. Whatever you have for me. I want to be sober and, and vigilant. Uh, I want to pay attention. I want to be about the king's business, especially in the days in which we're living in. Not to be apathetic and lethargic. 
So here Elijah is showing us that. And in the last, you know, verses 20 and 21 here, as we read that, it's interesting. He dies and he's still working miracles, isn't he, when he's dead? So they bury, you know, him and then they bury somebody else in the same tomb and it touches the bones of Elijah and that person is revived. The person is revived. Why should we be fervent in, in prayer? Why should we be fervent in, in love and fervent in spirit? Because there are dead men walking. And there are those that are out there that we know that are dead spiritually, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, dead in their sin and in their trespasses. But there are those who, who need to be touched. And we need to, to be ones that, Lord, I want to be open today. I want to be praying and open to your leading, intercessory prayer, praying for that person, maybe that you're working alongside of or in your family, because I want to be able to revive those and touch those. And one of the things here is, as we see that Elijah was dead, that as we are fervent in our life for the Lord, that if the Lord does take us home, and, and one of the things that my prayer is, Lord, if you tarry and, and when you do take me home, that I want my life, that, Lord, I was fervent for you, that I leave a godly heritage to my family and to others. It, it reminds me of, Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, that, that you've kept the faith, and talking about his faith, the faith that first that your grandmother and your mother had. In other words, they were praying for you, Timothy. They taught you the scriptures, as he would go on to say in another section there of Second of Timothy. But they were ones that left a godly heritage to Timothy, and look how Timothy, how he was used of the Lord. You see, as you minister to others, as you Leave that godly heritage to your children, to your grandchildren, nieces and, and nephews, whoever it might be. That even as the years go by, and even as perhaps our lives will come to an end, I know for me that I want my children to be able to say that my dad greatly, you know, was a blessing to me. And he benefited, you know, us and just sharing about the Lord and raising us up in the ways of the Lord. And, and we're walking with the Lord because it has a lot to do with what my dad did and how he loved us and how he spoke of the Lord and raised us in the ways of the Lord. You see what I mean? And Elijah here, even after he's gone, he's still having a positive effect on people here, bringing them to life. And I know that if my days was to come to an end, that what I pray is, is that I leave a godly heritage to my family, to this community, that it would benefit others. So here's Elijah here, and, and he passes off the scene. And verse 22, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jeho Ahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. See the compassion and the grace that the Lord had on them? He regarded them, that is, he remembered them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which were taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father by war. 
And three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So again, he took the arrows, he struck three times, and we see that Joash defeated the Syrians three times, but did not totally defeat them. So chapter 14, in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. So now we're moving from the house of Israel now to the house of Judah, as we see here the king of Judah is being spoken of, Amaziah. And he was 25 years old, verse 2 tells us, when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. Interesting, Amaziah is going to continue in some of the reforms that we saw that his father had put in place just a couple chapters ago. But there was still the compromise of keeping the high places. Now, I don't want to go into it again as we talked about that last time. The high places were places were places of temptation for the people to go and sacrifice there. And, of course, God had appointed where the temple in Jerusalem there in Judah was the place where worship was to be done, sacrifice, um, was to be done there. But the people, those high places that were left by the Canaanites uh, were places where people went and they sacrificed. And then it would lead to them sacrificing and worshiping false idols. So those places were kept. And we don't want to keep any high places in our lives, do we? We don't want those places of temptations, those things of temptations in our lives. But it's interesting, Amaziah, even though it said he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, we see that he's compared to David. David was a man after God's own heart. And I think that what the scriptures is saying here is it says here that, um, but he was not like his father David. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he didn't have a heart after the Lord is what is being said. He kept the reforms, but he just kind of went through the motions. He, he kept the reforms, but he didn't have really true devotion to the Lord. Matter of fact, Second Chronicles, speaking of Amaziah, says that he wasn't not loyal to the Lord. And we're going to see that as we continue to read about him. But I want to stop and pause here for a moment because the question that we can ask ourselves is as we talk about being fervent in, in prayer and in spirit and in, in, um, you know, in, in love, uh, being fervent for the Lord, it, it takes one having a devotion for the Lord, having a heart for the Lord, being loyal to the Lord. That was David. And you remember that it was Asa that was told, as he did wrong, that the Lord's eyes go to and fro across the whole earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are what? Loyal towards him, devoted to him. He's looking for that man or woman who's devoted to him and loyal to him, and he desires to work in your life, but he wants our devotion. He doesn't want us just going through the motions. Oh, I guess I'll go to church. I guess I'll go to church a few times on Sunday, you know, during the month. It, the, that should do it. That should be okay. You know, going through the motions of, of, you know, worship. Going through the motions of having devotions in the morning. But the Lord desires for us to really have a heart for Him. And here, Amaziah doesn't really have a heart. Not like David. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a worshiper. He loved the Word of God. He loved the fellowship with God. He, he was one that is, um, was so devoted to the Lord, he never bowed the knees to an idol. So all the other kings are compared to David because he was a man after God's own heart. And that's what I want. And that's what all of us should want is, Lord, to have a heart after you. 
So as we're introduced to him, verse 5, now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father the king. But the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses in which the Lord commanded saying, fathers shall not be put to death for their children nor shall children be put to death for their fathers but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. So Amaziah avenges his father's death that we saw in a couple chapters ago, um, as we saw uh, that Joash was put to death, you recall. And so those guys who did it, he goes after, but he did not put to death the children. That was a custom that usually that was done, but he followed the law of the Lord. That was good. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, God said the children are not to die for the sins of the father. You and I are responsible for our own sins. And that's what the scripture is teaching. So the law of Moses saying that, so he uh, would execute those who actually did the murdering of his father, but left the children alone. In verse 7, he killed 10,000 Edomites in the valley of salt and took Shelah by war and called its name Jokthael to this day. So as we move into verse 7, Amaziah, he goes to war against the Edomites. Who are the Edomites? The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, you remember? And they would reside in that area just east of the Dead Sea, in that area which today is called Jordan. And here, as it says in verse 7, that he went to battle uh, against them and took Shelah by war. Shelah is another name for the rock city Petra. Now, the rock city Petra, Shelah, spoken of, of Isaiah, also spoken of in the book of Revelation chapter 12, not by name, but is made reference to, that it has significance in end-time prophecy. Because the Rock City Petra, and if you're out in a coffee shop, we got a picture, there's a picture that we have of Petra. And it was a city that was carved out of the rocks. It's very mountainous. There's only one way into the Rock City of Petra. It's through a narrow valley um, that is... Um, this valley about as wide as this sanctuary, and the walls go straight up, and, and sometimes it's even, you know, very narrow. Um, and it goes up for 500 feet, so that's the only way into the rock city of Petra, and then it opens up, and they carved, you know, these dwellings, and it's very fascinating, right into the rocks. And, and that's Shelah, that's the rock city Petra. We know that in the middle of the tribulation period, when the Antichrist when he establishes himself as, as God there, as he puts up that image there in the rebuilt temple, as we studied in the book of Revelation, he proclaims himself as God. He wants to be worshipped as God. And the Jews are going to say, no, you are not our Messiah. We're not going to worship your image. And then the Antichrist is going to heavily persecute them. He's also going to heavily persecute the tribulation saints they do not give their allegiance to him because at that time, the Antichrist wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to be a world you know, uh, you know, leader and where everyone turns to him and gives their allegiance to him. And when the Jews say no, there's going to be a remnant of them that Revelation chapter 12 talks about also in the book of Isaiah that they will flee to the wilderness. And Isaiah gives reference to Shelah. So it is probably the rock city Petra that that's where they're going to go and the Lord's going to preserve them for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So here is this battle in the Valley of Salt and Shelah by war called his name Jok 
Thael to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, uh, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. So what's all this about? This is what happened. In Second Chronicles chapter 25, here is Amaziah, king of Judah. He wants to do battle against the Edomites. So he would gather 300,000 soldiers from Judah. But he didn't think that was enough. So what he does is he hires another 100,000 soldiers from Israel. And he pays them you know, to, to come and, and to fight with him. But the prophet of God comes to Amaziah and says, Listen, Israel is not with the Lord. Do not use those guys. Do not pay tribute to them. So he sends them home. And he thinks, okay, I'm going to do what the Lord tells me to do at this point. So he sends 100,000 from Israel home. Those guys are so upset that they didn't get paid and not going to be used to go to fight against the Edomites. On their way home, what they do is they go throughout the cities of Judah and they plunder the cities of Judah. They end up killing thousands of people. So Amaziah, when he goes to war against the Edomites, he defeats them. Matter of fact, he's very brutal. As you read 2 Chronicles chapter 25, he takes some of them and throws them off the cliffs of, of Seir, the, the, the rocky mountains, you know, uh, hills that were there in the cliffs. And what he also does is that he takes some of the idols of Seir and the pagan idols and he brings them back to Judah and he burned incense to them. So he does that. The prophet comes to him once again and says, because you have done this, it's bad news for you, Amaziah. The Lord's going to deal with you. And his response was, is that who are you to be you know, telling me this, prophet? Who are you? Are you the king's counselor? And so he would persecute the prophet. You know, as we bring the word of the Lord to others, not everyone's going to be happy with this, are they? Or receive it with gladness. Sometimes they will get upset. Who are you to tell me? Who are you to quote scripture to me? Who are you to, to you know, tell me these things and be all religious to me and stuff and tell me that what I'm doing is sin or wrong? But we do bring correction. We're to do that out of love to others and to, to a desire for them to turn to the Lord. But not everyone's going to be happy. So Amaziah, even though he was one that should have received that word, he didn't. And so he's upset at those 100,000 that plundered the cities of Judah. So he's, in verse 8 here, he sends a message to the king of Israel and says, let's get it on. Let's, let's go to war against each other. Let's do battle. And so that's what sets it up here. He's all puffed up because of his victory but spiritually he is not in a good place. So verse 8, uh, as we see, he, he says, let's go to battle. And then verse 9, then Jehoash, um, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son as wife. And the wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. thistle. And you have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed. Therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. So this is what happened. 
He sends a message, let's do battle, king of Israel. The king of Israel responds saying, listen, you had victory against the Edomites. Enjoy your victory, but you're all puffed up. But listen, don't go to war with us. Don't meddle to your own hurt. And Amaziah didn't heed to it, and they went to battle. And he ends up being defeated at Beth Shemesh. A couple things here. I have that underline. I think it's real important in verse 10 there. Do not meddle to, you know, your trouble or with trouble. Don't meddle to your own hurt is some of the translations is what it says. I think that's a wise thing for us to consider tonight. In other words, know this. You have victory in Jesus Christ. He's delivered us from sin. We are forgiven. We are born again by the Spirit of God. It is wonderful. We have victory, but don't meddle to your own hurt. In other words, don't be doing battles that you're not spiritually strong enough to do and ready for. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? Don't meddle to your own hurt by going to places that you shouldn't be. Oh, I'll go with the guys to, you know, and hang out with them after work. We'll go, we'll go to the bars, and I'll just be a witness to them. I'll just kind of watch, and I'll just hang out with them, and it ends up that you end up getting hurt spiritually. It ends up... You know, the temptation is too great for you. Or you meddle to your own hurt in what you're watching. Or getting involved in relationships that you shouldn't be getting involved with. You know what I mean? Sometimes we think, oh, I can hang out here, I can hang out with them, I can participate in these activities, I can do these things, and we're meddling to our own hurt. We think we're more spiritually strong, and we really are. So we need to be wise. And we need to be careful. Don't meddle to your own hurt. You have victory in Jesus Christ. Allow him to keep growing you and making you stronger, but don't be in those places where it's going to pull you into temptation. But also, as we see here, he's defeated, um, and we see in verse 12 that as he's defeated at Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh is, is it's an interesting place. You can go there today, and there's a tell Beth Shemesh, this Beth Shemesh that's being talked about. And and it's the ancient biblical city of Beth Shemesh. There's nothing there. They've never really excavated it. It's just a big hill. And you can walk up the hill on top of it, and you can look, and to the west is Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is where Saul and Jonathan were killed. Remember as we open up the book of 2 Samuel, the first king of Israel, they were killed on Mount Gilboa, and the Philistines brought them to Beth Shemesh and pinned their bodies on the wall. Later on, during Jesus' day, Beth Shemesh would become one of the cities of the Decapolis. The Romans came in and built it all up. And you go through the ruins today, they had an amphitheater and the streets and huge pillars and an earthquake came and, and, um, and destroyed it. But they've done a lot of excavating there. But it's a, it's a real interesting place. You stand there, you can look to the east and you're looking across the Jordan Valley and where the Ammonites were on the east side of the Jordan River. And you actually also, as you look to the north, you can see where Gideon's spring was. Where Gideon and his 300 men were uh, drinking from and um, were used to defeat the Midianites in the book of Judges. So here is the king of Israel, verse 13, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, and the son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. In verse 14, he took all the gold and silver and the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king house and hostages and returned 
to Samaria. So they capture Amaziah at Beth Shemesh, one of this, um, and then they would, the king of Israel, would go to Jerusalem, and they would uh, break down part of the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, the temple was plundered, and it was just bad news for Judah, and they even took some of the people away hostage back to Samaria. Listen, don't meddle to your own hurt. Why? Because you will experience defeat, verse 12. You will be held captive, verse 13. Your life is going to be plundered, verse 14. And you're going to lose your freedom, taken hostage by the world and by the enemy. So don't meddle to your own hurt. In verse 15, we see that now the rest of the acts of um, Jehoash, which he did, his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the first was the first king of, of Israel. This is Jeroboam the second. We're going to talk about him in just a minute. But first of all, as we read in Verse 17, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the, of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? And he ends up, if you read verses 19 through 22, that he ends up being killed. He's buried in the city of David. Let's go to verse 23. In the 15th year, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Now, as we move into this time here that Jeroboam II is ruling, um, as we go now back to the house of Israel in verse 23. During this reign, Jeroboam, the nation actually is going to be prosperous, the house of Israel. But something else is going on as well, because you can read that during this time, during this time that Jeroboam II is ruling, that there are some prophets on the scene. One of them was Jonah. You know Jonah that went to Nineveh? He goes to Nineveh, and he says, repent, and the city would end up repenting, but that wouldn't last long. Also during that time was Amos. Amos was one that was from Judah, but he would come up, and Amos brought a message, and he was preaching there at Bethel. What was, you know, at Bethel? It was one of the temples dedicated to the golden calf. And it was Amos that would bring a message that God's going to bring judgment if you don't repent and turn back to him. And then also during that time was Hosea. Hosea would come on the scene a little bit after Amos, he was the last of the prophets that come on the scene that spoke that we know of, recorded in the scriptures, before they go into captivity by the Assyrians. And, and he is giving a message, too, of them to turn to the Lord. It's about 750 B.C. The captivity begins in 722 B.C. Actually, some of the captivity even starts before that, about 733 B.C., those tribes on the east side. But Hosea is coming along, and things were so bad. And as you read Amos, as you read Hosea, what was happening in the nation here is even though there was prosperity, the people were given over to violence. There was adultery that was going on. Um, there was all kinds of just sin and rebellion against God that was taking place, and the people refused to listen to the Lord. And Hosea, of course, he was the prophet that was told to take a wife. And she committed adultery. And Hosea 
you know, bring her back. Don't stone her, but bring her back and restore her. And Hosea did, and then she did the same thing. And God was allowing Hosea to feel some of the things that he was feeling as he was being betrayed and adultery was taking place. And then he would cry out, Oh, Israel, oh, Ephraim, how can I give you up? But you've committed spiritual adultery. Things were so bad. It, it was as bad as it was when Joshua, you remember he came in and the Canaanites were in the land and all the pagan religion and the immorality that was taking place, that was God's people doing it now. And it's a sad commentary as you go through and you read Amos, as you read Hosea. And a broke, broken-hearted father that was saying, oh, come back, but you would not. He wanted to bless Israel. He had compassion and grace. He was gracious to them. He remembered them but they refused to turn to him. So we read here that Jeroboam, even though he's reigning during a time of prosperity spiritually, the nation was very sick. In verse 24, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. That's Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord of Israel. To the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Atmatiah, the, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. Isn't that a sad commentary? That's what sin and rebellion brings. It brings bitterness, is what it does. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Jeroboam is going to bring a little bit of stability. It's like this is the last opportunity, but yet they would not take it. And we're going to see them go into captivity after the first of the year when we come back um, as we see that Jeroboam and all that he did is might, how he made war, how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus to Hamath and what belonged to Judah, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So, Father, we thank you for this time and the study of your word. And as we conclude um, you know, this for Wednesday night, um, Lord, I pray that we would be back here, that we would be going through these chapters and learning. And we see... What happens when there's rebellion, when we meddle to our own hurt, when we don't listen to your counsel, that there is defeat and captivity, there is bondage, we're being held hostage by the enemy and by the world. Lord, we see that it's just bad news. There's bitterness, just as we concluded tonight. But Lord, we also know that you desire for us to turn to you and to cry out to you. And Lord, also for those around us that, Lord, are feeling the bitterness of the world and the captivity of the world and the bondage of the world and sin, that we can give them a message that a deliverer has come. His name, Emmanuel, God with us, who went to a cross and died for them. And Father, I pray that we would have fervency in prayer, praying for people and in love and, and in spirit, not just growing lethargic and just kind of going through the motions where there's no real devotion to you. Oh Lord, the lessons, just the simple lessons that we see tonight. 
what your desire for us that in this this Christmas season and in this new year that the Lord just have a heart for people and a heart it starts by having a heart for you so Lord I pray that that would take place and that would be our desire the Lord that we would be ones that we want to draw close to you and Lord, that as we have a loyal heart towards you, we know that the promise of Scripture is that you will show yourself strong because your eyes go to and fro across the whole earth looking for that man or woman whose heart is loyal towards you. Lord, that we would have a desire that we want to leave a godly heritage to whoever it might be for us that we minister to, whether it's our children or grandchildren or other relatives or people at work, whatever it might be. And Lord, I pray that we would be a light because there's so much darkness that's out there. Just as Jesus, the light of the world came, that he said to us that we're now the light of the world. Oh, Father, thank you for this time of the year when we remember the greatest gift that's been given to us, your son, who went to the cross and now we have the free gift of salvation. And Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in that every single day that we've been freed from the enemy. We don't have to live in that bondage or captivity of sin and death and bitterness and all that. But Lord, to live in your joy and peace and gladness of heart. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that, the Lord, they're going to be traveling during the Christmas season, that, that Lord, that you'd bless them and be with them and Father, I pray that um, you bring them back safely to us and that all of us, that as we get now the final days before Christmas, that truly that we would just ponder that incredible story of the birth of our Savior. Lord, I do pray if, if there is anybody here that has never really truly turned to you, Father, that they would know they just need to simply cry out to you realize, just turn to you, that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And I pray that Jesus forgive me. And I turn to you now and I give my heart to you fully. I surrender to you. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross for my sins and you rose again and you're alive. Be my personal Lord and Savior. You've received the greatest Christmas gift, any, any gift, And that is the gift of salvation. As you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and confess that God has raised him from the dead. The scripture says you shall be saved. Lord, bless our evening as we go now. And Lord, may you just fill our hearts with peace and goodwill and great joy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.